Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Scran. I'm your host, Rosalind Erskine, and this is the podcast that champions Scotland's diverse food and drink scene. This episode is produced in partnership with Scotland Food and Drink, and today marks the launch of the Scottish Food and Drink Fortnight from the 5th to the 20th of September. This partnership will see Scotland's food and drink industry celebrate local legends, with regional producers showcasing their produce through their social media with the aim of encouraging people to source, buy and eat Scottish food and drink. Scram will take a culinary tour around Scotland, chatting to a range of these local legends about their businesses, produce and their community. This week, I'm on a socially distant tour of the North East as I chat to various entrepreneurs in Aberdeenshire about their passion for growing their business and why the culinary scene there is booming. My first guest is owner of House of Botanicals, Adam Elin El Majirab, who talks about his creative idea that led him to research and recreate the famous Boker's Bitters, which was first created in 1828 and completely disappeared after Prohibition closed the Boker's company in the 1920s. Adam also discusses what botanicals are and why they're so important in creating flavours, as well as his new products. So can you just um, tell me a bit about the backstory of House of Botanicals and how it came to be? Yeah, so... I started my first business in 2005 as a consultancy and training and events business. And that evolved into what I'm doing now. Um, I started a project in 2007 to recreate all the cocktails from the first ever cocktail book that was printed in 1862. It's the Jerry Thomas Bartender's Guide. Mm -hmm. And as part of that project, I started, I guess you call it a mission or another project, a sub-project to recreate cocktail bitters that were used in the book that disappeared. Originally, I thought I would maybe unearth a sample of the original Boker's bitters from the book. But I discovered through the research that the brand has actually disappeared during the US prohibition. Mm-hmm. I then carried on this insane project to recreate the um, the Boker's for the blog. After about um, well, best, best part of two years of research and development, it involved me contacting families who managed the company, obtaining old samples and put them through a GCMS process. I also unearthed court records and other bits and bobs, um, recipes for shape pokers, but there counterfeit pokers, but that are being made back in the 800s to recreate it was five bottles for the blog, um, but enough for the drinks. And I posted it on my blog and then, and off the back of that, I received between 500 and 1,000 orders in the first week. Wow. to buy a bottle from different bartenders around the world and it just kind of grew arms and legs from there I mean I could, that that bit alone has got its own mad background but that's really how the company started and then it kind of allowed me to develop beyond being a bartender into starting my own brand and then which has now evolved into the House Botanicals which is a kind of long-term project again. And, and would you say was it that project to try and create the cocktails and then end up making the bitters was it that that inspired you to kind of set up House of Botanicals? Uh, yeah, in part for sure. I mean, I think like most, especially younger bartenders, when you're not quite sure what you're doing, you know, where where you're going in your life. I mean, you, a lot of people love the job and love the, the various um, great things it brings. But in reality, until recently, it wasn't really a career option. And there was very few options for you to kind of pursue your career. 
I believe we are the, the oldest bartender on brand in the UK, for example. Um, so we were the, the kind of the small. I was the first to kind of progress away from the kind of general route. And I think, like again, like most bartenders, who are serious about making a career from it. They've all got plans and objectives to potentially maybe write out write their own book or start their own brand or open their own bar. But having the finances to to do it is also in the main barrier holding them back from doing that. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And that's really what it was. And I, I always had my own plans and my own dreams. Sorry, I probably probably for the better word. To you know have my own gin brand, have my own bar, have my own book, and all the rest of it. So I'm lucky that I've been able to kind of tick off some of those boxes now. Uh, and what is it that you love about your job? Oh, there's various there's various elements. My background has been in food and drink throughout my life. Um, my mum's Scott, my dad's Libyan. Um, so I've had a very mixed upbringing with regards food and drink. I mean, you know, I always laughed at a kid, but when I was going to school, you know, in pad one, sorry, mm-hmm. and I would always have like random bags of Bombay mix and stuff. And at the time, it was just, you know, everyone else was like getting monster much. And I was this little random Scottish kid in Bombay mix and decoras and stuff like that. And it was <laughs> my, my experience of food and drink was probably, probably a bit more diverse for, especially living in Aberdeen as well. It's not like I was living in London or a more cosmopolitan city. And that's had a massive influence on my life. My mum, took me in the kitchen at a very young age and I used to love watching her cook and helping her cook and stuff as well and that kind of transferred across and I started working at bars kind of discovering flavour but also having the freedom as a smaller kind of company that we don't have we don't put profit as the sole driver in what we do um, we, we we kind of play around and that's how kind of botanicals how botanicals focuses is in exploring different avenues of botanical led product the opportunity to do different things is my main my kind of my main love but also the, the, the kind of the social aspect as well obviously mm-hmm. um, and meeting new people all the time So just for anyone that doesn't know uh, it gets bandied about a lot these days with the gin kind of boom that's going on but what are botanicals and why are they so important when it comes to inspiring flavours? The botanicals I mean they're primarily herbs spices roots and bark it's more of a wider category now we'd say nowadays they encapsulate I say all natural flavors are probably the best way to describe them. We use things like chocolate and coffee and stuff as well as natural botanicals. So they're in, they're in everything. Definitely in the last couple of decades, there was never really a mention of what botanicals were. You know, what, you know how how pivotal they are in our life. I don't know why that was, but they've become more. There's more of a focus on them with obviously the rise of gin, but just across the board, you hear more. I think the rise of craft beer as well. And I think that it's something we can all connect with. We all have our own experiences and memories of botanicals, um, whether it be a, you're a young kid going to your, grand, your grandparents' farm or your grandparents' house and, you know, playing with the flowers they've got in their garden and different scents and things you get. So so we tell our story through the liquid and it does translate fairly well, I think. So. Yeah, and I think that's what people are interested in now. I think, personally, I think one of the, the things behind the gin thing is it's the, the stories you can tell from the botanicals and just, just from the, you know, where it's distilled and how it's distilled and, People are really more interested in all that kind of thing now, aren't they? Definitely, yeah. I think I think also the, the environmental impact. People can sometimes moan about them being overused, but it is a it is a major focus for. I think everyone should be interested in it. You know, like our raspberry old farm, for example. Although it was predominantly a kind of push back at the pink gin category, pink gin classic with gin and bitters, and this new the new kind of evolution of pink gin for me was just sweet, fruity nonsense. I mean, what to highlight that you could make a pink gin, you know, a modern pink gin, sorry, using natural, you know, fruits that, yes, give it the colour of, of pink, 
I'll give it a light pink hue or whatever you want to call it, but can do it in a complimentary way to the, to the base gin. So it's still juniper heavy, but it's got this natural taste of raspberry, which is more tart as opposed to a sweet fruit. Mm-hmm. And I think now we're also with the, the age of information that we're being made more aware of these things. Also companies like ourselves and smaller companies, if you do focus on the kind of environmental support local and buying local and seasonal and all that kind of stuff. Um, so you kind of covered this uh, in the beginning when we, when I asked you about how you got into doing what you're doing, but um, you specialise in recreating lost taste, particularly through your bitters range. So can you tell me a little bit about the process of this? It sounds like it involves a lot of research. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's a quote, I can't remember where it was heard after I heard it. I think, I think it may have been actually been a Joe Rogan podcast, believe it or not. They, they said a phrase, and it's always resonated with me, we're a species with amnesia, and that we have had so much experience through, you know, through centuries and we've forgotten so much as well. And I think we, we've almost, to a point, had this pattern that we, we could recreate old spirits and things. But a lot of what we're doing nowadays has been done before. If you look at some of the modern techniques, for example, that we use in bartending, there's, there's hardly anything that's actually new. It's all been it was all done 200 years ago. We're just coming back in because we now have the information back at hand again. And I think that's, a big part of what we do is constantly looking at what's happened before and taking inspiration from it and also making it uh, adjust to the modern palate. So if you look at our Old Tom Gin, for example, the Old Tom Gin, we looked at the history of what Old Tom was. Old Tom is named after a guy called Thomas, um, Thomas Chamberlain. He worked at a distillery with a younger guy called Tom. And when that younger Tom moved on to start his own distillery, he then recreated or he then created his own style of what this gin was, the sweet and sailor gin. He named it named Old Tom after his former mentor. Now, again, Old Tom, it's botanical rich, so there's more flavoursome than London Dry. Again, London Dry is pretty obvious what it is, it's the clues in the name. With Old Tom, you know, why is it, how would it have been adding more flavour? Well, it, it dates back to a time when production wasn't that great, just to make the gin more palatable, you would add more flavour. And then couple that with also the kind of Mary Poppins, I call it the Mary Poppins effect, which is the, a spoonful of sugar helps help the medicine go down. Um, you know, gin goes back to a time when it was medicinal, you know, it, there was no clean running water. So if you were drinking gin first thing in the morning, and again, if you go back to London and back in the 1700s, when I think there's stats where people were drinking a pint of gin a day, and that includes children. And then there's a fairly heavy research element as well. We connected different dots with counterfeit court rec- and counterfeit recipes for bokers. There was court records we found. So yeah, there's, there's various different ways we do it, um, and various reasons why we do it as well. I'm just interested in how things work. And that's just the way I am. If I can't find the answer, I'll try and find it myself. So my mind works in mysterious ways, to be honest. Um, and you've kind of touched on um, the bartending journey, um, but where do you think it's going in the future? Do you think we're heading kind of in this, like you say, circular journey? Are we are we heading back towards something else we've been through before, do you think? Or And also just kind of, um, I always wondered this, I, I always find that within the UK, we don't really have like an emphasis on a career, like you say, in hospitality as they do and there's like a famous kind of university I think in Sweden or Switzerland where it's quite prestigious to go there um, and I just wondered if you like your thoughts on that if if that might you think if that was to change and people were actually to stay in the industry for a bit longer rather than thinking of it as a uni job like what what might what might come of that yeah no I, I definitely I think I think food and drink generally is cyclical and goes round and you know goes round and round given the especially the impact of COVID I noticed things were getting so we're going back to more classical style, I think. So a lot simpler. I think a few years bartending, I thought about bartending, I thought about cocktail bartending specifically. It, it was becoming overly complex and it was 
more about the drink as opposed to the actual experience of going to a bar. You know, we don't go to bars just for a drink. We go for the, the whole experience of meeting friends and family, listening to music, impact on COVID and how it's changing the service culture with, you know, table service and all the rest of it, I think. In a, in a weird way, it's going to have a benefit for the UK and for bartending in general that we're going to be more susceptible to going out and having food with a drink and not just going and, you know, the usual mentality where you just go and get pissed and you have a kebab at the end of the night or, or you go for a meal and you have three courses then you get pissed. I think that now we're going to be we're going to be more used to having small plates with food, and I don't really see that being a problem. I think it's actually a good thing. I think that things will become more professional, and I think that the need to take things forward in regard of removing all the elements of hospitality that were that weren't working for us before, which is the constant you know cost cutting, you know the low prices, and you know low prices ultimately means low wages. The, the impact of COVID is going gonna, is gonna to be awful in the, in the short term. There's going to be a lot of people that will lose their jobs and lose their businesses. Mm-hmm. But in the long term, I think it will be more beneficial for local economies and for the industry as a whole to go along with that. I think what you touched on with some sort of degree or um, some sort of schooling official recognition, and I think that will be something that will come along with the back of COVID-19 as people have to be to show they're more professional in the hygiene aspect and the food safety aspect and all, all the little bits and bobs that are going to, is going to go along with the feature of service until this damn virus disappears. And I, to be honest, I, th- I think people have really appreciated, now become more appreciative of how hard it is to work in bars and restaurants now that people have not had a chance to go there every day for the last, you know, five, six months it was, and then try maybe to create their own dishes at home or create their own cocktails at home and just failing drastically. And realizing that God, I mean, these people are doing it every day. I'm speaking to some of my colleagues who own bars and stuff. They have said it, the spend per head is higher now, which is a good sign. Um, and from my own experience of going out to some of the bars before Aberdeen was put in second lockdown, people were, it seemed, to be drinking better drinks as well and all having small plates of food with their, with their drinks. So, and the difference in, in the quality of food and drink across the UK is it's astronomical to compare it to, you know, what it was. We just hope that the impact is is positive as well as also the negative side of people losing jobs, that there's a positive um, aspect to it as well. Yeah. Yeah, I hope so, because it's been pretty pretty terrible. Yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's weird because it has exposed a lot of the vulnerabilities of of the industry, especially the money aspect. And, you know, people people are living paycheck paycheck to paycheck and, you know, industries and businesses are basically living week to week. But I think that there needs to be a, a, top, a difference in um, approach top down from from governance, from you know how the councils manage these things as well. There needs to be a, a total shake up of it, and I hope there is an, a, a government level, an independent review of how the hospitality trade works. So, in a weird way, um, I hope it will be beneficial in the long run. But we'll just wait and see, I guess, at that point. Yeah. Great. Thank you very much. Awesome. Yeah. Bye bye. Remember to celebrate the best that Scotland's food and drink industry has to offer by taking part in the Scottish Food and Drink Fortnight from the 5th to the 20th of September. Food and drink producers can get involved by posting on social media about why you, your business, products or people make Scotland's food and drink industry so special under the hashtag ScotFoodFort20 and tagging the at ScotFoodDrink handle on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Now, from a railway arch in Aberdeen City to a fishing boat in Peterhead. 
Skipper of the Budding Rose, Peter Bruce, tells me about his family roots in the fishing industry and the importance of continuing this legacy. He also talks about educating local school children about fresh fish and traceability. Is your son kind of involved as well, like how you, you're involved with your father? Is your son involved with you in the industry? Um, I, come, I come from a long line of fishermen. My father, as I say, was a fisherman before me. My grandfather was a, a fisherman. And I'm glad to say that where uh, fishing legacy is going to continue. My son, Michael, is aboard with us on the boat now. It's quite an interesting story. Michael, he actually went to university and got his degree in engineering, but he was in the oil industry and he was, he, did, he never settled. And he came aboard the boat about three years ago and seems to be very happy to fishing. And I'm hoping that uh, in the years to come, he's going to carry on uh, from me. Nice. And what impact has the pandemic had on the fishing industry, in your opinion? The pandemic has had a, a massive effect on the fishing industry. I mean, after the lockdown started, prices were very depressed. A lot of the fish merchants prolonged their staff, and it was very, very uh, limited demand for the fish. We landed just two days after the lockdown, and, and the, actually the, the we, we, we didn't even cover our expenses. The prices were so poor. So, I mean, it's, it's actually had a massive uh, effect. The good, the good news is, is now that things are actually picking up and the prices uh, for the fish and that had fish market has been very good. So, uh, but, uh, this year has been a very, very testing time for the fishing industry, as it has been for all industries. I mean, the fishing industry is no different from the rest of the industries it's uh, it's been tough mm-hmm. um and can you tell me um about your average day on board your vessel the budding rose <laughs> <laughs> well i mean uh, you're never sure of the fishing uh, sometimes it's very unpredictable depending on the weather but i mean usually we would uh leave from Head, steam off to the fishing grounds i mean a partner a part a pair call with another fishing boat a lot of and I have done for 20 years. So in a usual day, I mean, I would I would shoot my net. We would throw it for four hours. Then we would haul it. And uh, the fish uh, in the net would be processed by my crew. So they would be gutting the fish. They would be washing them, boxing them, putting them down, down the fish room. And then we would shoot away again. So it's, it's a 24-hour cycle. I mean, we're fishing... We're fishing for 24 hours a day when we're out in the fishing ground. Quite busy. Yeah, and it must be difficult when weather like we've had currently with the storms and stuff. Does that? Cause do you find that affects you too? I, I mean, it, it can be hard in, in bad weather. We're we're quite used to fishing in uh, bad weather, but you have to be very very careful. I mean, the most important thing is all always in a fishing boat is the safety of your crew. So you have to you have to watch what you're doing and they always consider the the, the crew's well being, especially in, in bad weather. And how is it you find the best places to catch the fish? I've I've been skipper now for over thirty years. So you you just you just know at certain times of year you'll go to certain places. I mean on the boat I've got thirty years of diaries with all the readings where I've caught fish at certain times of year. So so you, you know to go roughly to certain places at a certain time of year. We know the fishing grounds very well, and 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 we know 
the places to go to. It's like it's like an angler in the river. They'll have their best spot. And we we're the same in the fishing industry, the same in the fishing boat. Um, and once you've caught all the fish, um, where does the fish go when you land your catch at Peterhead? On the on the budding rose, we catch a wide range of species like cod, haddock, whiting, skate, and all the, all these fish have landed on Peterhead fish market. Now where they go, it, it depends on the fish. So the haddock would stay in Scotland, the cod would go to England, or monkfish would go to France and Spain, cake would go to Spain. So I mean, fish goes all over Britain and all over Europe, into hotels, into restaurants, onto fish vans, fish and chip shops. So it goes to a wide range of places. And what do you enjoy most about skippering your own boat? You've been doing it for a while now. I just enjoy running the boat. I enjoy the fact that we go out of the harbour each week with an empty boat and we have to catch this fish and it depends on what we, how much fish we catch and what we got them on the market. But I find it very, very rewarding when we come in with a good, a good catch and my crew gets the reward for the hard work they do. Yeah, because it, it will be a lot of hard work. I, I think people don't really realise how much hard work and also how kind of life-threatening it can be. We had a, a podcast out a few weeks ago and we kind of discussed that on it. Like you, you guys are kind of risking your life. Even, you know, you say, you know, safety is obviously paramount, but... Yeah, I see the safety issues, the, the paramount thing. It's not catching fish. And we we, we respect the sea, but uh, I mean, I, I myself had the... We, we had a boat that sunk in 1988. Uh, all the crew were rescued, but it was uh, it was it was scary at the time. It is a dangerous job. We can't scare ourselves. But I mean, I think the fishermen are a lot more co- uh, safety conscious than we used to be. I mean, the crew wear life jackets on the deck all the time, and uh, things are improving when it comes to safety as a fishing industry. And what are your thoughts on sustainability when it comes to the fishing industry in Scotland? Well, I mean, I, I, I think we've a very, very sustainable industry. I mean, if I give an example myself, I mean, I've been fishing since 1977. We have always fished in the same area. And we're always catching fish. So, I mean, for 40 years, we went to the same place, same area. So, I mean, is that not truly sustainable because we're still catching fish? If it wasn't sustainable, we wouldn't have a profitable business and we, we wouldn't be catching any fish. So, in it, uh, we, we use bigger mesh size. We've got bigger uh, holes in the net uh, to let the small, immature fish. So, I mean, I, I think uh, we're a very sustainable industry. Um, and when it comes to uh, cooking at home, what, what fish would be your favourite to cook at home? We, we eat fish on the boat. This last trip we had a bit of uh, monkfish with a bit of halibut. I mean, I love a bit of turbot, to be quite honest, but I love I love all types of fish, like swimming, soul. We just uh, love eating fish. So one of the benefits of the job, you can just take some fish straight off the boat? Well, we're, we're very lucky that way. I mean, we're, <laughs> we've already supply of the, the best fresh fish. So the crew as well, I mean, they're allowed to get a bit of fish down. So. Um, and you've worked with schools and restaurants in the past. What kind of questions do children and chefs ask you about fish? Yeah, one of the projects that uh, I've done was with the children was this uh, project, Seafood in the Schools. And I, I, I was amazed. I mean, 
this project was about was that they used to fish in and with the whole place and chefs came in and cooked it. And um, I mean, some of the children couldn't even recognize a mackerel or a lobster. And it was great for them just to, if they could handle a lobster and see it and, and recognize. Some of the kids were really good in fact, as, as well. They needed children who went with their father down to some of the some of the, the seals and fish for mackerel. So they, they knew what a mackerel was, but they, I found it quite, uh, I, I really enjoyed this uh, an experience with seafood in the school. I can imagine there would have been some hilarity holding a lobster because it's still, I'm assuming it's still be moving. Yes, yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was some of the faces, some of the expressions and some uh, people were a bit frightened, but some, some, of, some of the kids, the kids were actually excellent. Uh, Are there certain seasons for fish as well? Yes, I, I, I would say fish can be very seasonal. Really, just now, in the summer months, the fish is, is really good. I think it's, I think best, I would say, in the summer months. Uh, fish, fish can be seasonable, but in the summer months, uh, like just now, the fish is really, really good to eat. Basically, if we wanted to come and get your fish, it'd be at, at, um, up at Peterhead at the fish market up there, yeah? Yeah, that's yeah. right. On the, on the budding roads, we've, uh, we've got a crew of seven, and uh, we'll fish five to seven days landing on to Peterhead fish market. And is that is that like a sort of normal-sized crew, or is that sort of small? Yeah, I would say. I mean, most of the crews uh, on the Scottish boats would be five, five to eight. It, it just depends on the, on the boats and how you structure it, you know. Some of my crew have been a, a long time with us as well, uh, my engineer, he's been over 20 years with us. And my cook, he's been about 15 years. So some of the guys have been uh, well with us as well. It must be one of those things that you you must love it, like grow to love it as well, because it's quite a thing being out in the sea all the time, I would have thought. I, it, it, the fishing is just my life. It's who I am and I enjoy the boat. is a very important part of the family. I mean, me running the boat, you just make it hard as, as you want. I mean, uh, we have quite a bit of time off as well. I mean, my crew, my crew we had a bit of time off and uh, we have a long weekend. And well, I've really certainly enjoyed uh, running the boat and I hope to do it for a few years yet. Before your son takes over. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I hope that uh, I'll be on the background and be like a mentor to him. I, I, would, I would like that, that I could uh, help him a lot of ways and Maybe I'll, if he gets his ticket and starts fishing with the boat, maybe I can come back and, uh, and relieve him and, and give him a, a bit of a break. Mm-hmm. Nice. Well, um, thank you very much. Speak to you later. Thank you. Bye. 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 Next up, Hungry Squirrel Nut Butter founder Susan Yale developed her business when she was looking for an alternative to peanut butter for herself and her children. She talks to me about the importance of sourcing ethical ingredients and her Scottish USP for expanding overseas. So uh, could you just tell me a little bit um, about yourself and why you started Hungry Squirrel Nut Butter? Yeah, at the time I had two younger children. I was running to keep fit and I had a love of peanut butter. Um, And I kind of found myself becoming intolerant to it. Um, So I started eating almond butter, which I got in supermarkets. I was just really uninspired with it. So I couldn't find anything I really liked. So I decided to start making my own and looking into recipes that I could use to create it. And then um, I thought I saw a gap in the market, actually. So I just I thought, I wonder if I could make this into a business. I asked a friend who came on board with me for the first year of the business. And we just we created some recipes. We 
we um, did tasters with friends and family and then we started doing farmers markets in the local area and quickly discovered that we had um was quite a lot of people coming back for repeat, you know, repeat orders and stuff, um, a lot of vegans and um, people were looking for specific healthy foods. So um yeah, kind of just built on it from there quite organically. Um, and what was the kind of rough timeline for that? So that was in May 2017 that we actually launched the business. Mm-hmm. So just over three years ago now. That's yeah. good. Yeah. And just for anyone that doesn't know, can you explain what nut butter is and why the appeal is growing? Yeah. So nut butter is it's just peanut butter, but using different nuts. Mm-hmm. So um, I use all sorts of nuts, like almonds is one of the main ones. Um, and you just you just grind it to a paste until the natural oils release and it turns into a like a spread really um, and then you can add all sorts of different flavours to it and make it quite quite an interesting thing to use in all sorts of foods or just on its own um, and it's definitely growing popularity I mean it's been big in in the US obviously for a long time and um, everyone knows about the health benefits of it so I think that um, is definitely part of the attraction it's it, you know it's a really good source of protein for people that don't eat meat and, and there's so many out there now that, you know, that have got inciting flavours. So, um, yeah, it's just a healthy alternative to things like jam and butter, you know, dairy butter. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have mentioned the health benefits of your protein. Um, is it also one of those like um, kind of healthy fat things that everyone's kind of got a bit more into now, having avoided fat for so long? I know, absolutely. I think we've been told for so long not to eat fatty foods. But actually, nuts are full of really healthy essential fats, so mainly unsaturated fats as well that they've got. So that not only they're high in protein and fibre, but they've got all these fats and they keep you feeling full up and full of energy. So you can eat quite a small amount and feel quite content, you know, for the rest of the the morning or the day. What's what's your core range and how do you go about like trialling like any new products that you sort of develop? So as I said, I've got um I've got a few almond flavored almond butters that I do. I do like um savory mixes. I do some sweet ones. I do a coffee one, a raspberry one, and I've got a cashew butter with cinnamon. That's really that's probably one of my best sellers. So I come up with ideas that I kind of like. I get people that I know to try them, and then uh, I haven't done this for a while actually because I'm too busy making them now. But um we did go to farmers markets and get a lot of feedback there because people could taste them. We did a few focus groups and taster sessions and some of the retail outlets that we sell through. They would go along and do, you know, pop-up shops for the morning and let people try them. And you get a lot of feedback then mm-hmm. from customers. So, yeah, and also I work I work quite closely now with social media influencers on Instagram and Facebook so um, and food bloggers. So that's really good. You can send out your products to them and get, you know, honest reviews and feedback. And do you find the sort of Scottish element of things kind of helps with, you know, people's sort of interest in provenance and all that kind of thing? Or like the Scotland, the brand type thing? Yeah, I kind of think so. Although, you know, it's, it's not it's not typically Scottish product, but I think the fact that it, there's not many people making that butter in Scotland. So I think, um, yeah, it's definitely a, a bit of a USP. So I think the, and the appeal for the US market is definitely, I think there's going to be a strong slant on me being Scottish as part of that brand. So I think that, you know, just because there's so many out there already, having that something a bit different, I think that'll be the Scottish theme. Yeah. <laughs> also, how we're going to play that, I don't quite know yet. But Yeah, Americans love all that, don't they? Anything Scottish. Yeah, they do. <laughs> yeah, I think so. So, um, yeah, I've still got to work out how I'm going to sell that as a Scottish product. <laughs> <laughs> um, and do you have a favourite at all, or is it like trying to pick between your children? Well, it's really difficult. So I, kind of, I kind of switch between them quite regularly, so I, Cookie dough cashew is the best seller and I it is one of the ones I'll go back to consistently. But then sometimes I'll 
uh, you know, for astral doors open at home at any time, so I'll just switch between them. At the moment, I'm kind of enjoying the chai spiced almond on white corn crackers with chocolate. You know, you get chocolate corn crackers. Mm-hmm. They're really nice with um, the chai spiced almond on it. Um, nice mix of sweet and savoury. Sometimes I like the raspberry one. It's really good. <laughs> yeah, I like all of them, actually. That's the problem. I'm trying to cut my range down a little bit and I, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it sounds good. I need to I need to try them. Oh, well, okay. Yeah, you should definitely try them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and do you have, so you said like some influencers have done recipes. Is there a way to sort of use um, some of the butters you maybe mentioned so in like a savoury sense, like maybe like a sort of like chicken? Oh, with... yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I do uh, um, a chai spice almond and I know that that's been used quite a lot for, well, people use it to marinate chicken maybe and then put them on skewers mm-hmm. and, and grill them. Or, you, can, you know, if you're a vegetarian or vegan, they're quite nice just, um, in stir fries or you can you know coat your vegetables in them and grill them in the same way as you would a bit of meat you can add it into curries um, there's a ABC that I do which is a blend of almonds brazils and cashews and that's really nice and really nutritious blend of nuts and it's self, just salted so that's quite good in all sorts of things as well as a savoury you know with crudities or um, yeah fruit you can have it in all sorts of in all sorts of ways mm-hmm. nice but yeah definitely sweet or savoury you can use it anyway they're so versatile it's good um, well, I think that's probably everything, unless there's anything that you want to add or um, sort of pick up on. Um, no, I suppose it might be worth, me- worth mentioning. Another reason that they're growing in popularity, apart from the fact that they're they're obviously vegan and they're they're sugar free or refined sugar free, they're they're also you know they they suit so many people with different dietary needs. So they're you know they're dairy free, they're not they're naturally gluten free, and the whole palm oil thing. So I think all those aspects of nut butters, if they've got that, you know, if you tick all those boxes, it, it kind of opens up to a whole load of people out there that are looking for you know specific specific requirements from their food that they're buying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. I didn't realise about the gluten. That's good. Yeah, yeah, naturally gluten free. So it is. Um, yeah, it's really good. There's all sorts of things in them that are really good if you're um, following a health or fitness regime mm-hmm. yeah uh, well thank you very much oh thank you very much it's really nice to speak to you Rose. okay you take care speak to you later bye-bye. bye bye finally we jump into the kitchen with stevie mclaughlin head chef at restaurant andrew fairley to continue on the freshly caught seafood chat stevie tells us how to make a restaurant classic lobster thermidor my name is stevie mclaughlin and these are my cooking tips for scran listeners Lobster is, I mean, if, if I was doing lobster, I would do, this how I would do a lobster thermidor. So you would take a lobster, let's say we're cooking for two people. I would take a, I'd take an, I'd take an 850 gram lobster approximately, and I would drop it into a pan of really salty boiling water, four and a half minutes, take it out, let it cool, and remove the claws, and remove the meat from the claws and the knuckles, throw the shells away, and then the head, and the tail still attached, I'd split that lengthways. I'd take the tail meat out and keep that separate along with the knuckles and claws. And all the dunk, the head, I would discard that. So what you've got is you've got meat, tail, claw, knuckle, and you got an empty shell. And then from there, I'd make my thermidor sauce. The thermidor sauce for me is into a pan goes very finely chopped shallot. And then onto that, you put white wine. And reduce that to a syrup. And then onto that, put in some fish stock. And again, cook that down till it's almost a syrup. Into that goes some double cream and mustard, the old pal mustard again. Um, whisk that together and then put in cheese such as Comte or Gruyere. Fold that together. And separately, I would whisk 
a little bit of double cream and add an egg yolk or two to that and then fold that into a mustard shallot mixture. And then the meat, I would cut into bite-sized pieces and fold that through what you have now as your lobster thermidor sauce. The thermidor sauce is a cheesy, mustardy sauce. Um, and then the nuggets of meat that are all coated in the thermidor sauce, put them as neatly as you can back into the shell. And then from there, pop it under a hot grill or a hot oven until it starts to bubbly and toast in the top. And that's you done. Serve that with, serve that with a nice, nice crisp baby jam and herb salad. Thank you to my guests, Susan, Adam, Peter and Stevie. And thank you for listening to another episode of Scran. We would like to thank Scotland Food and Drink for partnering with us on this episode. We will be speaking to more Scottish food producers as part of the series in our next two upcoming episodes. Remember to visit fooddrinkfort.scot for ways to get involved in the Scottish Food and Drink Fortnight from the 5th to the 20th of September. Scran is a laudable production and is available wherever you get your podcasts. But for interactive and immersive content, you can download the Intel app. Scran is presented and co-produced by me, Rosalind Erskine, and co-produced, edited and mixed by Morvan McIntyre.